after you've marked that, if you would go ahead and open up to 2 Chronicles chapter 32. 2 Chronicles chapter 32 is where we're going to be at in just a second. It's so good to see everybody out. I'd like to echo what was said earlier. We do have a good crowd, although this is my first time on Sunday morning, so I don't know what the normal Sunday crowd looks like, but this looks impressive from where I'm standing. So if you're visiting here with us, I am also visiting. We have that in common, but I would encourage you To get in contact with one of the members here, maybe we can arrange a study or get to know you a little bit better. It's always good to meet people traveling or from different areas. Since this is the last time that I'll get to speak to you, at least today, I want to make mention of the fact of how much I appreciate the hospitality this weekend. Um, Everything this weekend has just been fantastic. I've enjoyed so much getting to know the elders and the deacons and everybody else that has been associated with this weekend. Everybody that I've met uh, has been very kind and has been very thoughtful in spite of the fact that I know Wiley and Wiley's there with us in Greenville. Nobody really held that against me, which was nice. Um, So I appreciate the kindness. I appreciate the hospitality so much. I do need to correct one thing, though. Carrie mentioned yesterday that I don't know what a Razorback is. I do know what a Razorback is. It's just in Texas, we call them boars, and so that's why I had the little misunderstanding there. I just didn't want anybody to think that I'm not familiar with the local wildlife, because that would be a gross misjustice. Uh, as we mentioned during the Bible class, I'm a big fan of character studies. Right now on Wednesday night, we are engrossed in a study on the prophet Elisha. We usually talk about Elijah, but Elisha, I think, is a, star- a character that he can have a whole lot to say about. He kind of intertwines with a lot of biblical history, and so that's what we're doing on Wednesday nights, at least back home in Hillside. And one of the greatest biblical characters, in my opinion, that oftentimes goes overlooked is the character of Hezekiah. Hezekiah has kind of a weird Forrest Gump-esque style throughout Scripture where he kind of reappears at different moments and then he kind of disappears and he kind of comes and he goes. But Hezekiah has a few moments that are really, really powerful. And you think especially of the time where he prays to God for 15 extra years of life, looks towards the wall and says that prayer, and then God grants that prayer. You think not too many verses after that where Hezekiah then shows all the kingdom of Babylon, everything that is in the storehouse. One of the greatest blunders of at least Hezekiah's life, even though it pales in comparison to most of the other blunders that all the other kings of Israel and Judah would have. But there's one moment in particular in Hezekiah's life that is probably, in my opinion, one of the most powerful. And as we talked about this morning in class, I think it works best when you put yourself in the story. And Isaiah chapters 47, 48, 49 kind of do a good job of talking about this story. But I want to focus on what's mentioned in 2 Chronicles chapter 32, starting in verse 1. Just to kind of set the stage for what's happening here in this chapter, you have Sennacherib, who is the leader of the reigning empire of the world at that time. There's no doubt who the big boy on the block is. Sennacherib is him. He has now showed up at Jerusalem. And to make matters worse, not only is he at Jerusalem's doorstep, but he's also annihilated everybody north of Judah and Israel. He's penetrated so deep inside of Judah that now he's literally right there. And to compound matters even worse, he's brought nearly a quarter million soldiers to take over a city that at that time probably numbers in around 50,000, 75,000, which is pretty sizable for a city in that time period. And Sennacherib sends out, and Isaiah kind of goes into greater detail on this, but Sennacherib sends out his emissary, Rabshakeh, who shows up and exclaims to all the people why they need to now bow to Sennacherib. Hezekiah kind of hesitates, and Sennacherib doubles down on that mention there. And then you have Hezekiah in 2 Chronicles 32 displaying what is, in my opinion, one of the greatest shows of faith that any Israelite or Judah king will have in the entire Old Testament. In 2 Kings, or 2 Chronicles, rather, 32, starting in verse 1, it says that after these acts of faithfulness, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah and besieged the fortified cities and thought to break into them even for himself. 
Now, when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and that he intended to make war on Jerusalem, he decided with his officers and his warriors to cut off the supply of water from the springs, which were outside the city, and they helped him. Many people think that that literally, of all the physical things that took place, saved the city of Jerusalem the most. And that's an archaeological evidence you can actually investigate to this day. You can see where that took place. Verse 5, he took courage. He rebuilt all the wall that had been broken down. He erected towers on it and built another outside wall. Strengthened the Milo in the city of David. The Milo is what Solomon restored. There was thought at that point that the city was so impenetrable that that was seen as a wasteful expense by Rehoboam and Jeroboam. But nevertheless, Hezekiah strengthens the Milo in the city of David, made weapons and shields in great number, appointed military officers over the people, and gathered them to him in the square of the city gate, and spoke encouragingly to them, saying, Be strong and courageous. Exactly what Joshua said three times in Joshua chapter 1. Be strong and courageous. Do not, be, or not fear or be dismayed because of the king of Assyria, not because of all the horde that is with them. For the one who is with us is greater than the one who is with them. And with him is only an arm of flesh. But with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people relied on the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. Isaiah goes into a little bit greater detail about this whole story. Isaiah talks about how Hezekiah brings this kind of shawl out in front of the entire people and he bows down, he prostrates himself in for the entire country and he prays this magnificent prayer of strength towards God, asking God to protect not only the city but also everybody that's inside of it. And for Hezekiah to do that at that point in time is a remarkable show of faith. Because while everybody else in the world is trying to get shields and swords and spears to physically defend themselves, Hezekiah essentially pushes all that to the side, puts all his chips into the middle of the table and says, the one in my corner is God. And that's noteworthy considering the fact that many kings before him and many kings after him would not even have a shred of that amount of faith. But it paid off for him. And Hezekiah essentially strayed to save the city by these actions. If you look in Isaiah, you can see that Sennacherib shows up at the doorstep, an angel of the Lord, goes throughout the entirety of the camp of Assyria, annihilates a quarter million people, and Sennacherib essentially goes back to Assyria completely embarrassed. But I don't want to talk about Hezekiah this morning. We can talk about Hezekiah all day long and talk about how great he is and how strong he is and how faithful he is, but I don't want to talk about Hezekiah this morning. What I want to talk about is, in, in, is there in 2 Chronicles chapter 32 and verse 8, where it says that after Hezekiah all did all this, the people relied on the words of Hezekiah. That's what I think is the most intriguing part of this entire story. Because you can talk all day long about Hezekiah's faith with God and how God extends his life and Hezekiah has access to priests and has access to prophets and has access to the temple and the people that are working there. And there's all these reasons why he can stay strong. But nothing, absolutely nothing in the world is there to guarantee the safety of the people with the exception of the words of Hezekiah. Ladies and gentlemen, if this is not a lesson on leadership, I don't know what is. The fact that you can put all your faith in God and not just that you are sure, but that also the people behind you are sure as well. Let me ask you this question though. What in the entire world did the people of Jerusalem at that point in time have to gain from this? What was it that had changed? Absolutely nothing had changed. The Necrob is right outside the city walls of Jerusalem. Destruction is imminent. They had annihilated lots of cities up until this. What had changed? Absolutely nothing. The only thing that had changed, ladies and gentlemen, was their perspective towards the danger that lay outside the gates. That's the only thing that had changed. So Necherib was still there. 
Quarter million people are still there. Destruction is still there. And you know that they're going to overtake Jerusalem as well. Nothing had changed. The only thing that had changed was their perspective towards the danger that was outside their gates. This is a lesson for us as Christians. As we deal with people in today's world, as we deal with temptation, as we deal with trials and things that really, really challenge our faith. And I would be lying to you if I didn't tell you that I, along with just about every other Christian I know, struggles with despair from time to time. Where we look at the news, which is the worst thing you can ever watch, especially first thing in the morning. But we look at the news or we go to the almighty Facebook and we just keep scrolling. We call that doom scrolling. We just keep going and going and going and going and going and seeing all the negative things that are happening. And we get down. We get down about the state of the world. We get down about the state of the church. And you hear about churches that are splitting right in half. You hear about preachers that have completely gone off the rails. You hear about elderships that are at each other's throats. You hear about people that used to be friends that are Christians for 40 plus years that now can't even park in the same parking lot. What is happening in this world? Then you take it personal. You start thinking about your own association with God. You start thinking about your own trials and temptations and all the times that I myself have fallen to temptation. When I knew better, I fall into this little pit of despair. And I start thinking about all the things that struggle to push in on us. We talk about Ephesians chapter two, which describes Satan as the prince of the power of the air, the prince of this world, and how the forces of, of evil are trying to push in on us to try and get us to turn away from God. And that despair is very, very real. But I would argue to you this morning that what doesn't need to change is the danger that's outside the gates. What needs to change is our perspective to the danger that is outside the gates. This was an issue that the early Christians needed to learn. Look in Hebrews chapter 12. We mentioned this morning how Hebrews is a book that is incredibly dense theologically. You can't look. If you, if you open up anywhere in Hebrews chapter 1 through 10 and you're not familiar with the context, you're probably going to be as confused as I am. Because there's a lot of things happening there unless you're a, unless you're a Jew and are familiar with those things. But in Hebrews chapter 12, the conversation shifts to now talking about the persecution that all of them are going to face. That is very, very imminent. And so as he talks here now, starting in Hebrews chapter 12, he says a couple things right off the bat here in Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 18, that he wants them to know. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 18. He says, for you have not come to a mountain, talking after all the theological stuff, now it's the exhortation, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and to a blazing fire and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind and to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words which sound... Well, such as those who heard the beg that no further word ever be spoken to them. For they cannot bear the command, verse 20, if even a, a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. But you have come, ladies and gentlemen, to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who enrolled in heaven and to God the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Hebrews chapter 12 opens this entire section by talking to them about the fact that you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. The implication is you will eventually resist to the point of shedding blood. And so as he goes throughout this monologue here in Hebrews chapter 12, he gets to verse 18. The very first thing that he describes is that you have come to a stronger mountain, and if you're familiar with Old Testament geography, if you're familiar with the Old Testament at all, you know that mountains play an integral part in day-to-day -day life. As a matter of fact, so much so that in John the fourth chapter, when Jesus is talking to the Samaritan, 
Jesus talks to her and she says, you Jews say that you need to worship on that mountain. We say that we need to worship on this mountain. What does it really matter? But mountains were an integral part. It's where sacrifices were made. It's where stories were told. It's where all these things took place. And so what the Hebrew writer says here in Hebrews chapter 12 is, you didn't come to a mountain of fire. You didn't come to a mountain that's contained in Exodus chapter 19 where it talks about gloom and darkness and lightning and fire and all these things that are emanating from the clouds. You came to Mount Zion, which is spiritual. Now, if you look in Exodus chapter 19, we could read chapter 19 and chapter 20, verses 18 through 21, that describes the sheer terror that these people felt, so much so that the people, as the Hebrew writer mentioned, said, we don't even want to hear the voice of God. We know that he's up there, but we don't want to hear the voice of God because we fear for our very lives. And certainly for most Israelites who had just come out of Egypt and had seen the plagues and then seen the the sea parted so they could walk through on dry land, this is actually the first interaction they have with God. They saw the effects of it with the plagues. I saw the effects of it with the parting of the sea. But this is the real first encounter, the first interaction with God. And they were absolutely terrified. So much so that Paul in 2 Corinthians chapters 3 and 4 describes the fact that when Moses came down from the mountain, they requested that a veil be put over his face so that they could not come face to face with the glory that is God. This was a situation that was meant to evoke terror. It was a situation that was meant to evoke awe, to be impressed with the power and with the glory of God. And yet in Hebrews chapter 12, he says, you didn't come to that mountain. You didn't come to Mount Sinai with the, with the smoke and with the darkness and the lightning. You came to a spiritual mountain. You came to Mount Zion. And Zion is kind of has this unfolding technique throughout history where first and foremost in 2 Samuel chapter 5, it's the city that David captured, eventually became the city of David. And then once Solomon took charge, it kind of expanded to just kind of include the temple area. And then when you move throughout later throughout history, it kind of takes on a metaphorical agency to the point that when you get to in 1 Peter chapter 4, uh, he describes, I'm sorry, 2 Peter chapter 2, he describes us as being citizens of Zion, the holy priesthood, all these different things, that we are embodiments of that priesthood. And in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 24, you look at the description of this mountain. All of it is about angels and about God and about being, spiritual beings. The point, ladies and gentlemen, is that you are not coming to a physical mountain. You're not designed to be impressed with lightning. You're not designed to be impressed with darkness. There's something spiritual about your rock. There's something spiritual about your foundation. And I wish more of us as Christians would take hold of that. Because when despair threatens to unravel our very faith, when despair threatens to tear out the foundation of who we are, we instinctively turn, just like Peter did when he stepped outside the boat, we instinctively turn to look at the things around us, to seek security. And what he says here is, you didn't look in, you're not looking for physical things. You are spiritual in nature. As C.S. Lewis once said, you don't have a body, you are a soul. You have a body. You're not a body. You, have a, you are a soul, you have a body. Let me rephrase that. Because that was confusing to me. He said, you don't, you're not a body. You're a soul. You have a body. What C.S. Lewis mentioned in that was something that we need to understand, is that we are distinctly spiritual beings. And as people who are suffering in Hebrews chapter 12, who desperately look at the world around them and are seeking for something to grab hold of, the fact that we go to a stronger mountain, the one that is spiritual, should reverberate within their minds. But he also goes on here in Hebrews chapter 12, starting verse 25, to talk about how there's a stronger warning taking place here. 
Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 25, he says, See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven? By my count, by the way, that's the third time the Hebrew writer says that. Don't turn away from God. If they didn't escape then, you're not going to escape now. It's the third time he says that. Verse 26, his voice shook the earth in, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but I will also shake the heaven. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken, as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken, those are the things that remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude, that's the key word there, by which we may offer to God an acceptable servants with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Make no mistake about it, ladies and gentlemen, when you hear this in Hebrews 12, 25 through 29, you are meant to be fearful. That's the whole point of it. That's why he ends it here in verse 29 by saying our God is a consuming fire. Anybody that has an understanding of God's power and doesn't come away at least a tiny bit scared doesn't get the point. But he says here in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 25 through 29, you have a stronger warning. Because as he would say in Hebrews chapter 10, everyone who sets aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. You set aside the law of God. And it's even worse. As spiritual beings, we have a more strong foundation, but we also have a more spiritual warning that is taking place. As Jesus would say, don't fear those who can kill the body, fear those who can destroy the soul in hellfire. There is a stronger warning that has taken place. We should be fearful in this fact, because as strong as he is in delivering this word, he's even more terrifying in enforcing it. And that's a lesson that not only the world needs to learn, but that we need to learn as well. For those who would think to themselves that God doesn't mean what he says. Or for those who would say that God said this, but I don't really believe him. After all, we are the people of God. And that's something Jeremiah had to face over and over again when people said, there's no way that God would ever destroy Jerusalem. There's no way that God would ever destroy the temple. Jeremiah says, those people are liars. He can and he will. If we don't believe that God will exact judgment for what we do that's wrong, then we are kidding ourselves. And that's why I think it's so fascinating here in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 25 through 29, in the midst of all this discussion about punishment and about threatening and warning and all these different things, he says here in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29, that since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude. Why? Why is it that we show gratitude? Because in the middle of all this discussion about mountains and how we're spiritual in nature and about how the punishment is so much more spiritual in nature and it's so much more intense than anything we can ever experience in this world, it's so much worse. Why is it in the world that we should show gratitude? It's contained within that verse. He says, since we have a kingdom that cannot be shaken, that immovable foundation of God, If you think back to Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus talks to Peter and Peter says, or Jesus says to Peter, who do people say that I am? And Peter says, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus comes back and says, right, you are. That's exactly right. I tell you that you are also Peter and I will give you the keys of the kingdom and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. That's a defensive posture. And what it implies in that passage is that Hades is going to try to overpower it, but it's not going to be overpowered. It's an immovable kingdom. We need to think about this idea of an unshakable foundation of God as being the bedrock of our faith. 
And it's something that Paul goes through great pains in Romans chapter 8 to talk about and to enunciate that though everything else may turn against you, I guarantee you, Paul says, it will not be taken from you. Shall persecution or famine or or peril or sword, will any of that take it from you? No. It's something we need to take to the bank. I want you to look at Daniel, the second chapter. Daniel chapter 2. Most of us are familiar with the story, at least if we've been in Bible classes as children or if we've ever heard this story sometimes in Bible classes, sermons, things like that. It's a very common story. But Daniel chapter 2, starting in verse 36. Daniel chapter 2, starting in verse 36. Lay the groundwork a little bit for this. You have Nebuchadnezzar, who is once again, this is a recurring theme from Sennacherib earlier, somebody who is a reigning force in the world at that time. Somebody who has the entire empires of the world at his fingertips. And in Daniel chapter 2, he has a dream. It's very disturbing to him. And so he asks all the soothsayers, all the wise men, what are we going to do about this dream? Daniel shows up, not only relates the dream, but also interprets it. And in Daniel chapter 2, and verse 36, he says, this was the dream. Now we will tell its interpretation before the king. I gave you what it was. Now I'm going to tell you what's going to take place. Verse 37. You, O king, are the king of kings. To whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold. No mistaking that, Nebuchadnezzar. You're the man. Verse 39. After you there will arise another kingdom inferior to you. Then another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. And then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things. So like iron that breaks in pieces, it will also crush and break all those in pieces. And that you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay, partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom. But it will have in it the toughness of iron, inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. As the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men. But they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. In Daniel chapter 2, verses 36 up through verse 43, Daniel is telling Nebuchadnezzar what no king wants to hear, which is that your kingdom is going to be temporary. Every king that has ever reigned throughout the entirety of history dreams about having a legacy. What is my throne going to be like? People will be speaking my name for hundreds of years, thousands of years. And what Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 2 is, your kingdom is going to be temporary. It's great. It's strong. You're the head of gold. It's a temporary kingdom. After you, there's going to be the Medo-Persian Empire. It's not going to be as great as yours. I've always wondered if he kind of slew that in there, threw that in there, just kind of to appease Nebuchadnezzar. It's going to be as great as yours. After that, you're going to have the Grecian Empire, and then you have the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire is awesome. The Roman Empire will stand for nearly a 1,000 years, so much so that Charlemagne in the year 800 will then try to restore that kingdom to his former glory, the Holy Roman Empire, which was either Holy Roman or really an empire, by the way. But yeah, I have all these kingdoms coming after it. These kingdoms will be great, and for a period of time, they will be the only kingdom. But in verse 44, in the days of those kings... The God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. In fact, it will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms. But it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, that great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So this dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. 
Not only will your kingdom be destroyed and not only will every other kingdom be destroyed that has ever existed throughout history, but there's going to be a kingdom that will exist inside of another kingdom. In the days of those other kingdoms, there will be another kingdom that will never be destroyed because it is set up by God himself. Do you believe that? I'll be honest with you, when you look at the news, and especially as I hear older Christians and older preachers say constantly when we're reminded of the fact that the church is under attack, it's hard for me to believe that. And it's hard for me to believe, especially as the most recent stats have shown, that nearly less than half, for the first time I think in our nation's history, less than half of the population identifies as being Christians. It's hard for me to feel like that we're winning anything. It's easy when we're in this building. It's easy when we've got song leaders and it's easy when we're taking the Lord's Supper and we can shake hands and see each other. It's easy here. It's harder out there. I don't feel like we're winning that battle out there. But what I have to remember as a Christian is that as long as I stay true to God, I will always be on the winning side. That's the message of Revelation, is it not? You know, you can argue about what Revelation is about and I know people have all sorts of interpretations and some of them are just straight up weird But the message, no matter who you talk to, from top to bottom, is that revelation is about hope. We win. We win. That's the message of the Bible. Do you believe that? Because I'll be honest with you, when I'm in the middle of my own personal fight, and I'm sure when you're in the middle of your own personal fight, it does not feel like we're winning. But just like the people in the days of Hezekiah needed to change their perspective about what was happening, so we too need to change our perspective about what's happening as well. Growing up in Amarillo, and I know this is not a a thing that's unique to West Texas. As a matter of fact, it seems like it happens everywhere. But growing up in Amarillo, I always remember about every spring, four or five different times, you'd see a little radar pop up on the bottom of your television set. And as soon as I saw that little rectangle that had parts of New Mexico and Oklahoma and Oklahoma, Kansas all in there, as soon as I saw that little rectangle, I knew that what was happening was that we were probably going to be in the middle of a tornado watch, which meant my dad didn't sleep. I didn't sleep. You stare and watch the news and you see that little rectangle, see if it's going to go from yellow to red to signify that a tornado has actually touched down. And if you've never seen a tornado up close, I've seen two, if you've never seen a tornado up close, it is terrifying. Much more so, or not, not even near what I'm sure they dealt with on Mount Sinai, but it is absolutely terrifying to see that much wind moving at that type of speed and to see what it's blowing and throwing out its sides. But inevitably what would happen is when that tornado shifted, when that little rectangle turned to red, we would run across the lawn to my neighbor's underground shed, would pull open that 4,000-year-old door that had no ventilation inside of it, and I'm pretty sure it had brown recluses and who knows what else inside of that thing, and we'd all skimmy down in there. And we'd stay there for two or three hours, and my neighbors were cool enough, but we had this little radio that would crackle and you would get the news and the weather, and as soon as it was nice, you would go outside. But I remember when we would see that little rectangle turn from yellow to red, you'd almost be filled with fear because you didn't know what was going to happen the next day. You didn't know that once you went down to that storm shelter, you did not know what you were going to come out to see. But one thing did change. When you run across the lawn, no matter what the danger is outside, and you get inside that storm shelter that is made from 4,000 square feet of concrete, when you get inside that storm shelter, you feel safe. The tornado can pass over you. It can destroy everything. And the entire city can be absolutely leveled. But you're okay. You come out, you rebuild. Probably another tornado six weeks later will show up, but you rebuild. But you know for a period of time you're safe. I would imagine on a much bigger scale, that's what it feels like to be safe in the arms of God. 
I love the story of the rich man and Lazarus and what Abraham says to the rich man when he's in Hades and the way that he describes Lazarus's now existence, previously sitting outside his front gate and having all these dogs come up and lick his sores, but he doesn't describe him as being in paradise. He describes him as being in Abraham's bosom, which is a feeling of comfort, which is a feeling of intimacy. And that's a feeling that we as Christians need to have in our lives. Not that we are immune and that we're not aware of what's happening around us, but that we recognize the danger and we change our perspective to it. And I would argue, too, that as you look at Hebrews 12, you see this transformation taking place. Hebrews chapter 12, as soon as this section is over, the stronger mountain and the stronger warning, it's weird how he almost kind of just goes back to business as usual. If you look in Hebrews chapter 13, starting in verse 1, Hebrews chapter 13, starting in verse 1, you have all this discussion about mountains and warnings and terror and fear and gratitude. But in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1, he simply says, Let love of the brethren continue. Don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them, and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves also are in the body. Marriage, verse 4, is to be held in honor among all. The marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. So that we may confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. For what will man do to me? He doesn't take this nonchalantly in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 through 6, to say that it doesn't really matter what happens outside. You should just go on your way whistling. But what he does describe is, don't let the fear paralyze you to the point that you can't move. And a lot of Christians, and especially in that that weird two to three day period in between the crucifixion and the resurrection, you have the apostles up in the upper room and they're terrified. The door is shut for fear of Jews. There's a a very palpable sense of, of dread that's happening. But the Hebrew writer, as soon as he talks about the stronger mountain, the stronger warning, he says, don't let that paralyze you. Life goes on as normal. Let love of the brethren continue. Don't neglect to show hospitality. Keep the marriage bed safe. All these things that we know as Christians, and yet sometimes we skim a little bit because of fear. But we have a mountain that is immovable. We have a mountain that is unshakable. We have a foundation, and we're part of a kingdom that cannot be moved by any other force on this earth. And we're all members of it as Christians. And because of that, we should be grateful that even though the entire world be destroyed and that everything else around us just be completely annihilated, we still have that kingdom. And we're still part of that kingdom. So to that, I ask you, are you a part of that kingdom? Are you a member of the Lord's church? The only thing in this entire world that will survive the end of the world. If not, why not? What are you waiting for? What's the hesitation there? But are you somebody who's kind of jumped in and out of the kingdom? You've kind of moved in a little bit, and then because of fear you've moved out of it, I would encourage you to get in and stay in because it's the only safe place that we'll ever have as human beings in this entire world. If we can help you inside that kingdom, if we can help you come back to that kingdom, we would love to help you. Won't you come as we stand and as we sing?